So my guest today has established herself as Britain's most iconic and long-lasting female electronic artist. A 28-year career has taken her from the underground UK club scene to selling out arena shows. She also DJs extensively throughout the world, broadcasts her hugely successful radio show Sister Bliss and Session, and has also taken to the airwaves for Scala Radio, showcasing her love of both classical music alongside genres like flamenco, ambient and house. She's founded her own record label, Junk Dog Records, a classically trained multi-instrumentalist and has scored numerous TV, film and theatre productions and also recently had a lead role in a major primetime BBC One show, The Recording Studio. Faithless, who she founded with Maxi Jazz and Roller, have record sales exceeding 15 million, a massive loyal fan base across the globe. They've just shared their new LP, All Blessed to commercial and critical acclaim already. Please, phew, it's a lot, isn't it? Please do welcome Sister Bliss to Elevenses. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, gosh, what a list. Quite the intro, isn't it? Is it quite weird sitting back and hearing it all like that? Oh, it really is, especially as basically at the moment I've been a stay-at-home mum. So all of the, all of the above doesn't really apply. It's like I, I just have to get my son's dinner on the table at the correct time. Um, that's my biggest struggle at the moment. <laughs> Which ne- never to be underestimated, you know, how no. difficult that can be sometimes. So yes. um, thank you so much for doing this. Now, what we tend to do normally is... Um, I start off by asking um, the first question of the podcast, which is, what's your first memory? And I am I couldn't find that much out about you, your personal life online, which I think you you must have just nailed that because it's so nice to have that separation, isn't it? Was that a purposeful thing before we start? I think I am actually quite a private person, but there's something about dance music that was different from the world of pop music where people would hang outside your house and throw their knickers at you and, you know, follow you all over the place. You know, I wouldn't for one minute want to be an artist like, say, Robbie Williams. Dance music afforded us a little bit more anonymity, maybe, and also... I'm just it's not hard you just don't talk about your personal life if you don't want to and I hope that there's also enough within the music that is um worthy of conversation that's what I really want to talk about so now I feel totally intrusive but the crux of the podcast being if you could share your first memory with us um did you grow up in London I did I did I was born and brought up in London this is my hometown my amazing city harsh city cruel city but also a pretty brilliant place to live in many ways um and my first memory I actually have an earlier one but I'd say this is my first musical memory um I discovered cheese on toast I can't have been much more than a three or four years old and uh, my mum had a record of the Rite of spring and I have no idea why but I put this record on over and over again and demanded that she make me cheese on toast between each rendition and then I put the needle back to the beginning of the record and dance around the living room like a mad dervish and then have cheese on toast again. I must have had about six rounds and I don't know why but that music it was so powerful it clearly did something to me and it kind of lives inside me a bit of Stravinsky uh, alongside all the acid house so it it must have done something to my brain waves or my consciousness I don't know why that record was compelling 
and I needed I needed to listen to it over and over again. In fact, it's always been something that I've done. I remember when I first discovered um, the Sugar Cubes, which Bjork was the lead singer of, and I wore out my seven-inch single of their their single birthday, which was produced by the late great Andrew Weatherall. Um, again, I couldn't. What was this sound that came from another world? And I guess that's something I've always been looking for in music or something that I really enjoy getting completely immersed in it and then wearing out the vinyl. Oh, it's so nice. There's something um, I love about music and I think some records just played to their strengths in certain times, don't they? And some managed to straddle both where they they sound as romantic and moving with the rain coming down on the windscreen driving as they do, you know, sort of like, I don't know, sort of striding out towards the beach on a summer's day, but it definitely takes on different meanings and vibes, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the context you listen to music in completely flavours and colours it. I mean, I think with Faithless and the music I make, we tend to try and create a world that you step into. So it might be the middle of summer, but you can get a winter chill listening to the music. Um, there is something about that. You know, the colour of the sky can change the way you feel about a tune you're listening to. I get sent so much music every single week and sometimes when I'm listening to Proman and the sun's out, they just all sound glorious and, oh, this is so funky, this is so brilliant. And sometimes if it's a bit, you know, cold, nippy, grey, foreboding, absolutely the music takes on a completely different tone and every, everything sounds awful. <laughs> Uh, while we're talking about Faithless, um, let's let's just mention that quickly because the most iconic, incredible band I've seen you play festivals uh, before, and it's it's so nice to sort of put a face to to the person I saw up on the stage as well. Um, you've got your new album out, All Blessed, which I was listening to this afternoon, which just just sounds wicked. It's coming out through BMG, so I urge everyone to go and get um, a copy of that. Some collaborations on the record as well. Yeah, that's right. It was um, always planned to be a collaborative album, and as we work with all sorts of different vocalists, a, a kind of thread emerged and a, and a message and a theme emerged and it felt, you know, it became hopefully one piece of music. And initially when we were working with people, we felt like just putting tracks out. It felt like maybe the album was a redundant format. People just listen to, to tracks on playlists now and streaming services. But we were gradually convinced that actually we have the privilege of an audience and they have you know, stuck with us for years and also allowed us to indulge in, in the format of an album and allowing the music to unfold. And, and, and as I was saying earlier, I think context is so important and I think our music sounds different. You know, we intend it to, to be bedded in a particular um, structure and also the song order is really important. We spend ages thinking about what would create a real immersive flow, you know, an experience that takes you into different musical spaces yet is all still the sound of one band. Um, so there are sort of unifying voices, I think, through the album and collaborators that we return to after we had worked with different people. So it was like putting them... Um, a giant jigsaw puzzled together. So I really do hope that people will listen to the album in context. You know, we have to do single edits that are three minutes long. They're like a little bite-sized chunk, but sometimes I don't think you can express what you're trying to do in the song over three minutes. So we we are very fond of the epic, progressive vibe where things unfurl slowly. I mean, the original mix of Insomnia was eight minutes long, 
That was the record that captured people's imaginations and we were forced to do an edit and it was almost impossible. How do you edit this down? Because the whole point of the music was this build-up of tension and then this release. And it was actually someone um, who, I think he was working at Radio 1, who did the edit for us, sort of chopped it up and that became the radio edit. Yeah, it's a different world now. People are sometimes delivering music that's under three minutes because we're in such a sort of uh, ADD generation clicking onto the next thing and the next thing. To even sit there and have the patience to listen to a whole song that's three minutes long seems to be beyond a lot of us in our crazy busy lives. So let's hope we can just take a little bit of time and slow things down and get stuck in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Actually, that that leads me on to, to my next question because I had read you talking about that and how you're kind of worried about the dis- disposable dance music generation where these songs just, you know, get to it so quickly and that there's no sense of time and letting things sort of organically kind of grow and really enjoying the journey that that music takes you on as well. The question I'm going to ask you now is what are you scared of? I mean, that came across in the interview that you were like, just like, please don't make all this. It's so disposable and quick. But is there anything musically or anything in your personal life that that you'd like to discuss there for question two? Yeah, I think I think there is a fear that people become so kind of harried that that music yeah, doesn't occupy that space in people's lives. There's no time because everybody's chasing something. I mean, at the moment, it's just sort of like to stay on our feet, isn't it? Probably financially, so many people have got job insecurity and COVID has completely changed the landscape. Um, you know, music seems like frippery compared to the massive struggles people are having on a day-to-day just to keep going. But at the same time, I think you can't underestimate what nourishment music gives us. Um, I mean, just from re-engaging with our fans um, over social media, the number of people that have said the most beautiful and moving things about how faithless music kept them company and the hardest times of their life through deaths of children and divorce and illness I mean it's just mind-blowing music is a balm it does offer a a space for healing um and I think we we sideline the arts and music particularly at, at our peril really so I'm frightened of frightened is the right word I'm scared we're moving in a, in a direction even from education onwards where music is being devalued in the syllabus and children aren't having music lessons as a matter of course it's only if there's a, a lottery that you manage to get enough money to fund a music department you know most state schools are, are struggling my son's at state school and they're, they're fantastic for music and the arts but right now they can't even use their music and arts building because they will have to stay in one classroom and the teachers come to them because of the new well, pandemic rules and and they're some of the lucky ones but there's lots of schools where they don't teach music at all to anyone so that's a fear that that won't be available you know that that, that deep satisfaction and also something that's very economically viable there's a lot of jobs Uh, within the music business, even if you're not a musician per se, it's a huge employer in this country. Well, certainly was until all of this happened. Um, My other fear is like homicidal maniacs, really. Like most people, I don't want to be chased down on the street by someone with a machete. And I think there's probably um, quite a few more homicidal maniacs around now. Yeah, I can understand that. And and just like a, a pressure cooker scenario as well. Um, it's just sort of pushing people to their limits, isn't it? So much. Yes, yeah. 
And I think we're going to see a lot more of it. And mental health services are massively overstretched. I mean, that's, again, something that's quite relevant to my industry. Even within music, you get a lot of very sort of sensitive, fragile people whose income is very variable. Many of us are freelance. We don't know when the next paycheck is coming. It's a very scary scenario thinking you just don't know if you're going to have a roof over your head in in a couple of months' time. So support for my industry and mental health support, I think, is really important. It's definitely become a conversation that's much more to the fore. I think artists are coming out with their own personal stories a bit more now instead of trying to present this kind of Teflon um, persona, if you like, the, the invincible artist who comes from another planet. Well, actually, there's quite a lot of vulnerable people floating about. You've toured for decades, haven't you? And I know that the touring family, I've, I've been lucky enough to do a bit of touring and I absolutely love it. Um, but your touring party do become your family don't they because i'm sure you yeah you're so right absolutely sure you've worked with lots of dysfunctional family (laughs) (laughs) but there's such a magic and joy in that um and you meet other sort of like dysfunctional touring families along the way as well and i i absolutely love it but i wondered if maybe one of those members um has become sort of one of your best friends in life or maybe it's someone totally removed from the music industry where you can just go and sort of have your other kind of side who's your best friend that's a very good question um yeah i f- i feel like the when when you're in a band you're absolutely right they, they are your home your heart and the in jokes the banter and all the experiences nobody else is on stage with us except each other it's very unique being the band on stage looking out onto the crowds of thousands of people in the audience it's it's a mind-blowing experience. But yeah, I have great friends in the band, but also outside it, I have very, very old friends as well, a lot through school and um, through university. So I feel very blessed. I've got a lot of friends from from all walks of life. Um, a lot of them have, have got absolutely proper jobs. You know, one of my best friends, she's a CEO of a, of a sustainable charity that, yeah, deals in... Um, global matters of global importance and I feel very silly and fripperous <laughs> that's a word beside her but you know and I like a lot of powerful women as well I think it's very important I think a lot of my friends are very gutsy and they do brave and amazing things in in all different fields of life I feel really happy as a lot of my friends have come to my shows and bonded and met each other there so I've got a whole you know, decades of my life where the friends and the friendships are now overlapping. And now I don't really meet very many new people at all um, because my son manages himself at school. I've literally made friends with one other school set of parents at secondary school. It all drops off when you're not picking them up or chatting at the gate. That whole social world kind of drops away which is a bit of a shocker, actually. It's quite weird. It's actually, it's, well, that's why I started working away from home, because I was thinking I'm just sitting here on my own all day, every day, going slightly mad. Um, and I took on a studio and a studio complex to kind of remember what it was to be in the working world and go to a place of work, um, which yeah. is not how my life has been yeah. for a good 20 years. No two days are the same. But actually, I like regularity. Yeah, right. I like routine. I've realised I... I really needed that. And human contact, it's very important. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, we, we've all learnt that, I think, during lockdown, haven't we, in this year? Um, Certainly have. I read earlier on um, you saying that one of your 
best memories of playing live was Glastonbury with Faithless and maybe DJing in Singapore, a certain club in Singapore. Um, I, I'm going to ask you this question. When were you at your happiest? And you can either go with a musical vein of that one or or maybe a, a personal tale of which one. Where, when did you feel at your happiest? It's very hard to answer that one, actually. I felt really happy today because I went to my studio outside my house, which is the first time I've been in weeks because my son's back at school now. Um, and it was so lovely to be in my room and it's got a great sound in there and it's got air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. So I was very happy indeed. <laughs> was there any moment where, I suppose this leads into my next question actually, when you were growing up maybe through teenage years or whatever and suddenly you had a moment where you, it all clicked for you and you're like, okay, this is me. I feel really comfortable in my skin. This is what I'm going to do. Was that the cheese on toast moment earlier on or was it later? <laughs> No, I don't know really. Um, I don't know if things clicked. I think I've always felt uncomfortable about certain things. I've made a lot more peace with what I've done um, in my life uh, more recently. There was lots of it that I didn't enjoy at the time. There was a lot of pulls in different directions. You know, when you're on the road, it really tests your relationships. I miss so many social engagements. I, you know, I'm lucky that my friends are still my friends. and Thank God they wanted to come and see me at gigs. Otherwise, we would have hardly seen each other at certain periods in my life. So there was a lot of sacrifice that went on. Um, so, uh, and there's also constant evaluation. What am I doing? Is it good enough? Is it is it is it rubbish? Is it exciting? Is it dreary? You know, within the brilliance of having, you know, doing gigs and and, and performing all over the world, and remembering how what a privilege it is to do that. There were some really dreadful moments as well, and I'd be sugarcoating it to say that there weren't times when I felt really torn or really hacked off or really exhausted. Um, you know, or really disorientated and dislocated. And I think in the moment of performance is when you feel that flow, when everything comes together. There are moments when we've done live shows or if I'm in a DJ set and I just know I am completely in the moment. It's all that sort of almost zen-like experience. You're creating... Um, music as one organism and you're moving with the crowd as one and we did a song about it called We Come One that does pertain to that exact feeling but I have experienced it and I have experienced it a number of times and it's it's um what's the word it's almost celestial it it feels like it comes from above and music has that sort of transformative power, even when you're making it, not just listening to it. So I've definitely had those moments, and those moments are perfection. I don't even know if it's happiness is what I would even call it. It's just absolute, um, I guess, that feeling of connection with everyone and everything, that universal consciousness, which probably should be the definition of happiness, shouldn't it? But it's also quite overwhelming. Where did, where did that pressure when you were just saying, you know, like, is this good enough? Is this dreary? Where did that pressure come from, do you think, on yourself? Oh, just inside my own brain. I've got a very, very loud inner critic and sometimes it needs beating down and um, it's something that I've had to really work on. So, yeah, I think a lot of people also have, in in the world of performing, have what's called imposter syndrome, um, that they don't really own their success, they don't really own their achievements. I mean, I do still listen to music and think, I can hear what's wrong with it. I can hear how it could have been way better. Or I listen to other artists that just, you know, they have more talent than their little finger that I've got in my whole body. 
you know, so I'm still in awe of artistry and brilliance and I think I'm a hard worker and I think I must have flashes of special things happening musically on occasion, but I always feel that my, I deliver my best work within a team, even though I, I write all the music myself on my own. I, I, I do need that validation from, you know, whether it's Rollo or Maxi or whoever else we're collaborating with, that I am doing something that does work. But I always, I am riven with self-doubt a lot of the time. Mm, that's fascinating. And I, I'm sure, I mean, I have moments like that as well when I listen back to edits and interviews and stuff. And I think, I think if you care as well, it matters doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. It is, if, if, if I just thought it was all brilliant and waltzed around like a complete egotistical maniac. And yeah, standards would fall. And again, this is an, a particularly, uh, it's, it's very relevant right now because we are putting out a new album after 10 years. So I feel it's not just judged as a piece of music, it's judged against everything we've ever done and that legacy, if you like. And that's a burden. I might just want to make a mad punk rock record or something really uncompromising, but I can't do it under the faithless banner because it would be, you know, just too too jarring for our for our audience and then I and then we go back and forth like we have to really love it but we're still aware we have a responsibility to to our audience you know and and I want our lyrics to be you know powerful meaningful insightful you know Maxi is our front man for many years is the agenda setting lyricist of Faithless. We've often discussed what we want to write, but he came in with his poetic vision and his amazing voice. So that set the bar very high for any other collaborations we do going forward. So, you know, it's not without its challenges. And I, I feel proud of the record we've made, but I always think there's more to do. The work is never done. What is your ambition? What's my ambition? Do you know what? I think I've I've lost a lot of ambition. There was a point where I was absolutely, and I believe in us, I wanted us to be the biggest band in the world and I wanted to be the biggest DJ in the world. Um, and we got quite a long way down that road. <laughs> but now, as I say, I think my ambitions have... I've let go. You know, I definitely wanted us to crack America. That's a big one that I feel we never got our teeth into properly, um, which I'll always regret. But I'll come back in the next life and I'll do it then instead. And right now my ambition is just to make sure I get dinner on the table, get my son in the right bit of uniform on the right day and um, and sleeping through the night. I could do with a, a full night's sleep. I haven't had one in months, but that's another story. Is that sort of a line with contentment do you think uh, to lose that huge driving ambition to be you know sort of keep going keep going or is it to a point where you think I'm a you know I'm, I'm good with where we're at you know I'm, I'm pleased I think I've just become more philosophical I can't make stuff happen we're of a certain age we, we will not have physical capability to be the biggest band in the world whatever that even means it's about fulfilling potential and I still feel we had potential to do even more and reach more and more people. But it, it, as I say, touring takes toll. It takes toll on your health, takes a toll on your relationships, your mental health and so on and so on. And even if I wanted to keep driving through, 
it's impossible to do with a school-aged child, for one. I have to keep remembering that. <laughs> um, so I've become much more accepting. And then, of course, being on lockdown pushed me into another place of thinking, well, thank God I did all those wonderful and amazing things that people wait their whole lives to do, not only playing the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury once, but twice, you know, and headlining arenas throughout the world, travelling to the most far-flung corners where people welcomed us with open arms. I mean, what an experience. If I'd have done my first record this summer and this was my first summer of festival bookings and that was going to establish me in my new musical career and it was all taken away, as it, as it has been for me, and this was the first time round. I, I don't. I don't think I'd be here talking to you. It's a, a huge burden, isn't it? And a huge. But I, I know quite a few new artists who had their first Glastonbury, you know, this year, or they had. Their, they were just about to break. And oh God, the heartbreak of it. At least I can look back and think. Well, at least I got to have a go, even if I still think there's there's further and and more. Um, but maybe that's human nature to always be seeking and questing. I don't think. Um, I think, as I say, I uh, my ambitions have become a lot more prosaic and ordinary now just to you know keep on living and be relatively healthy is important because without that get to a certain age and you realize you're only as good as your body and and your mind really yeah no it's so true it is so true do you lead quite a healthy lifestyle now then I do I live like a monk do you or a sister (laughs) a sister bliss yes I do (laughs) I'm extremely health conscious I do pilates I try and do lots of stretching I try and walk. I was swimming through summer, which I absolutely loved and hardly ever get round to doing, partly because it turns my hair green and it's extremely annoying. But now I wasn't performing and seeing anybody. I don't care if I've got green hair, really. (laughs) So, um, yeah, being active is really important and just trying to have a healthy diet, especially when I am working and have very irregular sleep patterns. There's just no way I could do that if I was drinking or all over the place. You were just talking about sort of looking back at sort of, you know, you, you were so lucky to, to do all those stuff, all that stuff and travelling earlier on. If you could go back now and give any advice to your younger self though, what would that be? Is my next question. Mm. Gosh, that's a good one. Um, I'd say enjoy the best bits because you'll look back and, you know, you'll realise how incredible they really were at the time um, and they'll be gone too soon. So time moves very, very, very quickly. Try and savour the moment. In fact, there's a song um, right in the end of the album featuring a great singer called Damien Girardo and uh, rapper, poet, spoken word artist, Sully Breaks. And it is about take those moments, slow things down. Don't rush through life because you miss the most important bits. Really savour it because it's gone in a moment. Yeah, and it's it's about how to see the the beauty in the everyday, and I I really love that. You know, there's a slow food movement, isn't there? And you know, people who want to do a, is it higgy, which is basically you know wearing your pajamas all the time and wrapping yourself up in a big duvet. You know, slowing down, sort of hibernating almost, and taking things a bit more gently, especially when you live in a city. It's a very hyper existence. Yeah, yeah, it's sensory overload, isn't it? As soon as you walk out the door. Yeah, no, there is something to be said for that. I think I noticed that a lot more when I became a parent um, and just sitting and watching, you know, the blocks being built into a tower <laughs> so slowly over and over again and the want to keep doing it and stuff. So that really slowed me down. I think I think for the better, for my benefit, actually. So it's funny what, what comes to you and makes you kind of realise that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. 
nothing like the benefit of time for hindsight. Yeah, man, for sure. Um, what do you think your worst quality is? I think I'm very impatient, um, which certainly really irritated people in the early days when we were doing rehearsals and band stuff because I could just see how it should be done, but people want to find their own way and try different things. I'm like, no, just do it this way because I know that works because I wrote the music and that would get a lot of people's backs up. And I apologise to you all. I love you. Sorry. Uh, so only impatient because I suppose that's because when I would have a vision about something, um, I'd want to push that forward. And that, you know, requires people skills, I think, doesn't it? And I think another bad quality, which again I've tried to address, is not stating my position. Being, on the one hand, quite quite brutal <laughs> in pushing things forward, but in another, in another side, sometimes not saying how I really feel about something. I'm not talking about music here, really. I'm talking about in relationships that trying to say how I feel rather than always imagining what the other person's thinking and feeling and kind of adapting myself to that. I think women do that a lot, whereas a man will just come in and say it how he, how he feels it. You know, I think that's something that perhaps we've been lumbered in, that emotional responsibility to other people instead of really tuning into ourselves and what works for us and being able to, to say that out loud. I don't know why, that, that's a particularly personal journey to me. With the, the earlier stuff, when you were saying um, about sort of getting impatient because people weren't listening to you as well, um, do you think that was anything to do with the landscape early doors in the music, you know, sort of decades ago of being a woman? I'm not trying to be ant antagonistic, I'm just curious. Or do you think it was because you were from a classically trained background? You know, there's lots of different factors. Yeah, I definitely felt... Um, I was in a very male-dominated industry and had to sort of grow a bit of a thick skin and be quite tough. And actually, I'm quite sensitive and I'm not really very tough. Um, and perhaps the impatience was also part of a bit of, you know, I don't know cognitive dissonance between those two parts of myself, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's hard to know, really. I don't think it had anything to do with being sort of classically trained. I don't think that's sprung to people's minds I, I mean I do feel I had to work twice as hard to get half the recognition you know I've sold a lot more records than a lot of DJs that are celebrated as the world's best DJs and a lot of that is to do with the tracks that they've released it isn't just about their sort of prowess behind the decks but you know I felt I had to really prove myself that I could I could rock it as much as any man could and that was you know that's good. A good, good learning lesson. Good thing to to keep trying and keep bettering yourself. But at the same time, I did feel sometimes there were some people that were really celebrated in the scene who were really. You just wonder why, because they supported the right football team. It's a lot of football chat amongst DJs as well. Once you get into the music business, you hear the conversations that go around in record companies, at gigs, backstage interesting the threads that can end up excluding women yeah fascinating well something to ponder isn't it um what's your greatest achievement then i think greatest achievement apart from my son which i have to say because he might listen to this 
It's not really an achievement, is it? You just get pregnant and have a child. But I hope that he is quite a nice child and quite thoughtful and he's going to make a difference to the world, a positive difference um, sometime down the line. Maybe not tonight, <laughs> on another day. Um, apart from apart from hopefully breeding a half-decent human, <laughs> um, I, I feel most proud that our music's touched people's lives. And, you know, whether our audience has been vast or quite small, the music has meant something. It, it wasn't just sort of oral wallpaper. It wasn't just the background to people's lives. It occupied a centrepiece. And, and that's such an honour for people to write to me and tell me they walked down the aisle to one of my songs or buried their son. You know, as I say, it's this. I'm not making this up. People have, you can read it yourself on our social networks. People have been telling their stories of their relationship with me and us and our music. That's an amazing thing to be invited into people's lives that you've never met. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And to make a positive difference and, and bring something to them. I mean... Much as it's a, uh, you know, I make music because I have to. The fact that it's reaching people and connecting with an audience, that's a a massive, massive privilege. Mm, Absolutely. Um, And, you know, that that unifying moment when we were talking earlier about the the concept of losing music because people, because we're not valuing it enough, which is so terrifying. It's the same for a rock band, a punk band, um, you know, an electronic band, dance music, people in the field. There is that unifying thread that pulls everybody together. Um, And I know that you've been um, talking about how, you know, we're talking about grassroots music venues and we're talking about theatres and we're talking about saving all these things, but also nightclubs. You've been in the press recently discussing that and that's vitally important as well. They're just as important as a a small rock venue, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, nightclubs and festivals and fans of, well, all music, but especially dance music, really is a community and it contributes hugely to the economy. It's very short-sighted to forget about nightclubs and DJs and all the freelancers that make our shows happen. Um, You know, there's a massive grant announced, which was £1.57 I don't think hardly any of it got to nightclubs. For some reason, it's not seen as the high arts and somehow that makes it easy to disrespect. But... You know, if we're going on a purely numbers game, the nighttime industries contribute 66 billion to the economy. And it's extraordinary. And more than that, it is a community. And there are people who don't feel safe in everyday life as LGBTQ communities who need safe spaces. So what can I say? It's a huge employer. And, you know, I, for one, have paid a lot of tax over the years. I didn't go and move over to Monaco. I I live here and I want to contribute to the society that made me. And we need those venues. Of course, we need people to be safe, but we need a plan from the government. We we need our industry not to be ignored. There's there's a lot of suffering. I mean, I think it's something like 1.3 million are employed within the nighttime industries. I reckon that's a conservative estimate. Because then you think of all the associated things like Uber drivers, people picking, pe- people being picked up from, you know, from gigs and so forth late at night. Um, even hot dog stands. There's lots of little spin-offs. You know, it's it's a it's an ecosystem. You know, crew, bar managers, promoters, venue owners, DJs, guitar techs, roadies, production managers, riggers, lighting designers. There are so many people involved in making our events world happen, and um, 
and we need support. Not everybody qualified for the self-employed uh, benefit. Not, not a lot of people were able to even be furloughed. It's the way the freelance world works is a lot of people fall between the cracks. So I think it's very important for us to try and stand with one united voice and write to our MPs and do as much as we can to take action and let the government know we exist and we've damn well contributed to this country and its standing globally, especially dance music. It's a massive global export electronic music. Our festivals and our nightclubs are the envy of the world and they were already shutting down loads of venues because of, you know, gentrification. Maybe the social scene has changed a bit. Maybe people save their money for festivals. There was already a downturn in the clubs. But we won't have main stage artists unless they're able to tread the boards and play the small venues and work their way up. final question I think I'm on to the final one um, which I think would be the best one to to ask you to conclude this which is is we've already heard about the right of spring Stravinsky with the cheese on toast when you were three but is there a piece of art or a piece of music that has changed your life there's probably many but if you could narrow it down I'd have to say insomnia the tune that we made that opened the door well opened the doors to the last 20 years and the previous six albums before this one, and to so many experiences and new friends. Um, that one song, the way it kind of captured people's imaginations, sort of semi-ridiculous, really. You know, we never intended that to happen. It was created as a as a song to balance our first album reverence, which was conceived like a proper LP with an A-side and a B-side, and that was to balance the only other out-and-out dance track, which was Salva Mea. So Insomnia becoming a global hit allowed us to tour. It allowed us to play to bigger and bigger audiences. It allowed us to make a second album and then a third and so on. When we really, it was a sort of side project. It was something we got together to make one record. And um, who knew I'd be here 25 years later talking to you. Incredible. Do you remember the day that it, the song kind of, was created and where were you what happened can you remember the day I do there were several days because there was a small studio in um a garden in Islington there was a shed and that was Rollo's first studio and we did the demos in there and I remember he said oh you know just sort of play a riff play a riff because we wanted to go record shopping it was in Islington and there was um I think it was a record and tape exchange just up the road and we wanted to go sifting through some vinyl and find some great pieces of beauty in there and grooviness and um so we wanted to get the music kind of out of the way so we could go record shopping and and I played the riff for whatever reason that's what was happening and then later we refined it at a studio that was just behind Highbury station called Swan Yard and we invited Maxie down that's where he recorded the vocals and I remember he'd had an operation and uh, he he was on painkillers and so he wasn't keen to hang around either because the painkillers started to wear off but I remember him being in the vocal booth through the little circle because the glasses cut into a circle and just seeing this plume of smoke and out came those lyrics. And basically, I said, we said to Max, we're doing a song called Insomnia because I was DJing loads at the time, so I just can't get any sleep. You know, my sleeping patterns are all over the place. I'm just a wreck. And, that, and he said, well, you know, write about what it's like to have insomnia. 
And paradoxically, Maxie's one of the best sleepers ever. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, he had to. He was reminded of a time he had an abscess on his tooth, and at that point, there was definitely a lack of sleep. So he kind of took himself back into that mental space and wrote the lyrics from from there on in. How amazing. And I lived in Highbury for like four years. So Oh, did you? Yeah. So I had no idea that I was like walking past where that was dreamt up every day. So that's a beautiful thing to share. Thank you. And then, you know, what what does that feel like that moment where you start it off? I think I saw you play it and it wasn't the opening track. I think it was mid-set maybe you dropped it when I saw you play. But I mean, when when you start it, I mean, you you must just get so excited for the crowd's reaction because you know it's coming, right? Yeah. I mean, it's got some particularly grand strings in the introduction. Yeah. And as soon as people hear the string progression, they recognise it and they do go batshit crazy. (laughs) And it is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to see. It all sort of strikes me as faintly ridiculous as well like just how did this happen yeah how did this happen but that it gives people so much pleasure still and also for us we've been remixing it over and over again in the live set so it's kind of grown and changed its shape from the very original version so it's kept it fresh for us as well there's you know it's a lot of people out there who've seen us play a lot of times so it's it's really enjoyable to play with it a little bit and have fun with it as a piece of music yeah wicked Oh, it's been such a joy to meet you, um, Blissy, and also to hear about your life. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, I guess that you'll be planning some live dates when everything's a bit clearer um, to support the new record, All Blessed, right? That's not up to me, sadly. Um, I don't know when we'll be able to go out performing again. It's uh, We're waiting for guidance and coherent policy, might I say. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess uh, just keep an eye on your website. Check out the new record because it's wicked. Um, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I think we've had 11s and maybe some 12s as well. Thank you very much. Uh, and the final guest of the series. So thank you, sir. End, end on a high. <laughs> oh, what an honour. Sister Bliss is the real deal, right? I absolutely loved that. Already looking forward to it the next time, hopefully. Um, I thought she was absolutely fascinating, so I really thank her for her time. Um, we come to the end now of Series 1 of Elevenses with Danielle Perry. Thank you so much for listening. I dreamt this idea up over a few years, actually, and to see it come to fruition is actually quite humbling. So thank you to all of my guests. Carl Pilkington, Steve Coogan, Sophie Dahl, Jeff Goldblum, Angelica Bell, Skin, David Arnold, and finally, Sister Bliss. Also, thanks to Bauer Media, my producer, extraordinaire Kelly Redmond. We will be back for Series 2. Uh, the coffee invites are already being sent out. So you can catch up with all of my uh, meetings, the past meetings we've had in the usual podcast places. And if you have any suggestions for new questions for Series 2, or indeed a plea to keep one of your favourites from this one, please do get in touch via Twitter or Instagram um, or we have also set up a Gmail address as well so questions at gmail.com I've been Danielle Perry now highly caffeinated <laughs> thank you for listening take care <laughs>